Hello and welcome. My name's Pete Rushmer and I'm your host today of a Half Dozen Things podcast. A Half Dozen Things is a podcast for business owners and professionals just like you. Whether you're an underdog hungry for success or you're already smashing it but want to continue to level up, we are here each week for you to get insight and learning from the very best in the business. No fluff, no BS and no self-proclaimed gurus talking about how easy business or life is. Just real, raw and frank conversations. My curiosity and impatience in seeking success has encouraged me to create a Half Dozen Things podcast. I designed it to bring you simplicity and discovery back to the forefront of your lives. We're all such busy people, it's easy to overlook the simple things we could be doing to achieve wealth, success and happiness. If you love today's podcast, please do share it, subscribe and let all your friends know how great the podcast is. Thank you. absolutely buzzing today to have Bob Pointer join me. He's my friend and was born and raised in Dagenham, Essex and after leaving school with no qualifications drifted through many different jobs from being a labourer and print worker to a trainee manager at Mossbros in Covent Garden. In 1978, through a series of twists of fate, he became a police officer and in the role of detective constable went on to serve in many local and national agencies and departments. In 2006, he became a lecturer at City University of London on a pioneering programme linking police training to higher academic qualifications. Since 2010, he has been a freelance consultant specialising in the field of human behavioural analysis, profiling and forecasting under the company name of Seafield Global. He's worked with organisations at all levels, from C-suite to customer facing in areas from security and investigations, compliance and HR to sales and negotiations. In the UK, he's worked with public sector bodies such as the Financial Ombudsman, Serious Fraud Office and the Competitions and Markets Authority, as well as private sector organisations such as Volvo Trucks UK, Metro Bank, Bernardo's and the TSB. Additionally, he has worked overseas with organisations such as OLAF, the European Union Counter-Fraud Agency, Verisign iDefence USA, the Institute of Internal Auditors Albania and Changi Airport Singapore. He recently co-founded an online learning platform, trust to learn and has authored its first programme, which explores the role of the head and face in interpersonal communications, which is going to be released really soon. Bob's an absolute superstar and I feel so privileged to get to interview him for a half dozen things. I really hope you enjoy today's episode and please do leave some feedback, subscribe, like, comment and share with your friends so they can benefit from the insights that Bob shares. His six interpersonal excellence areas for improvement for all of us as individuals. Enjoy. So the red button is rolling, Bob. Um, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing to have you join me today on a Half Dozen Things podcast, Bob. Um, I'm really, really pleased to have you here. Um, it's been a long time, hasn't it? It has. <laughs> how's, um, how's COVID been treating you? Well, it's been different. Um, I was in Singapore when the main thrust of it came out of China into Singapore. And obviously, obviously everyone was very worried there. I was working at the airport. And uh, I saw the change overnight. Everyone started wearing PPE. Very meticulous people, you know, with uh, cleanliness and everything. So I think they employed on the spot another hundred or whatever people to clean all the surfaces. 
and it was a very scary flight home. You know, everyone's coughing and as they do on a plane. And um, very worrying two weeks afterwards. And uh, since then, I've more or less been working from home, learning new things. And uh, it's, it's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. So that's yeah. how I look at it. Absolutely. Yeah. Just before we came online, I was sort of saying that, that much the same that, you know, we've got to take the opportunity sometimes to never again will we have this opportunity to to be able to work on and reflect on, on sort of where we're at really and, and how to develop it. So today we're going to be talking about uh, your half dozen key interpersonal skills, which uh, I'm really, really interested. It's a bit of a special episode for us. Are you able, obviously, you're a facilitator and you do do a lot of training around interpersonal skills. Are you able to just give us a bit of a background, Bob, on 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 what you do and, and why and how, if that's okay, please? Yeah, sure. I've been involved, well, really from an early age, I've been very interested in behaviour. You know, obviously I, it, well, I didn't think of it as behaviour back then, but I can remember when I was about 10 or 11 um, reading A Naked Ape by Desmond Morris and um, I think it was really because it was it was allegedly had lots of sex in it so that's why I read it I think 10 years old that's probably the main reason but um, I was always a fan um, of that type of thing and I had a long career and towards the end of the career uh, through a very strange path I ended up as a university lecturer uh, which surprised everyone um, including me, because I left school with no qualifications whatsoever. But I ended up as a university, the university lecturer in, in London, and um, the department I worked in worked very closely with the psychology department. And so I just you know, reawakened, one, my desire to learn, because I think I was one of those people that at 15 or 14 just didn't want to learn. But now I did, and um, I was very fortunate to meet a lady who was... Uh, my boss there, she was the head of the department I was in called Dr. Sue Palmer Clark. Uh, Dr. Sue Palmer, we'll just call her that. She has got another name, which I can't remember. Uh, Dr. Sue Palmer. And she encouraged me um, and saw something in me and just encouraged me and pointed me in the right direction, really, and just been, been a friend and a mentor ever since. And exactly. along the way, I've met other people like that who've just pushed me in the right directions. I'm probably not the right person to talk about business skills because I don't have to do this. I just do it because I love doing it. And I'm very fortunate because more by luck than skill, I've been able to do it all over the world. Amazing. Right, right time, right place, right skill set, I suppose, Bob. Well, the first two, definitely right. I don't know about the last one. <laughs> oh, fair enough. I think you're, uh, I think you're far too humble to be fair, Bob. I've, um, so I've had the I've had the joy of being um, been in a classroom with Bob training, and uh, it was uh, an absolute standout set of sessions uh, that I did. Um, absolutely fantastic for a, whilst I was working for a big big global uh, truck manufacturer, um, and uh, yeah, Bob was working with us as a sales team on our interpersonal skills, and uh, it was a game changer for me certainly and. Um, you know, in particular, me understanding other people, their behaviour, and then how I then interact with them as well. Um, you know, I, there's still things that I can call back on from that training, which was sort of several years ago around different levels of listening and, you know, 
particularly around um, oh, what's the term called when when you when you're having a conversation eliciting? There we go, eliciting. I was particularly uh, I, I remember being okay at the eliciting section. So just be careful when people are having a conversation with me because I can elicit information. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we'll, we'll we'll get cracking with your six areas because they're, they're actually quite expansive, and um, you know they're going to generate some really really good conversation. So um, the, the first one uh, is. It, the first area is it's a massive, massive thing for me, particularly since I've been podcasting, since I've been building a business and, and trying to build a bit of a personal brand as well. But um, particularly coming out of a corporate business as well, where the identity is so strong and that label is so strong, people really, really resonate with that company that I worked for before. It's a beautiful thing for me has been the ability to be able to come out and create my own identity for the business. And authenticity is a word that's bandied around quite a bit, really. However, it's, um, I think it's so, so important, particularly when it comes to communication, behavior, um, and, and really finding a, you know, the, a good way of, of gelling and, and, and coming across, Bob. So tell me a bit more about why you sort of put that first and at the top of the list, so to speak. Well, um, authentic is, um, I'll, I'll give you a, uh, an example is that you know I lived in an outskirts of London. That's where I was brought up, and I sort of lived in that area. And about th- three years ago, I moved to the Forest of Dean, and it was probably one of the best decisions that I ever made. And the people here are authentic. I joined a networking group here, and I'm surrounded by authentic people. People. The actual club is called Cat Collaborate and Prosper. And it's exactly that. And it's about people who want to talk to people and want to do business with people. I've been to all the other networking in Essex where I lived before. You went to networking and it was people trying to sell to you, not interested in you as a person and not really getting what it's all about. But authenticity is being able to project yourself, be true to the way you are and understand that everyone is unique and not try and impose your views or what you see as the way the world should be on them, but accept them as being what they are. It's about personas, really. Um, you know, the, the fact is we, we, we're born, well, we're brought up in a, pers- a personality. That's formed when we're very young. I think, you know, about the age of seven, it's more or less true, you know, formed from nurture and nature, basically. And then what happens after that is once our personality is formed, we develop these personas to put on top of our personality, which allows us to function in the world. And when I say authentic, I mean that your persona is a reflection of your personality. Too often I come across people who try to be something they're not. So their persona is so far away from who they actually are. So a lot of the work I do in general, but so much so more now, is working with people to identify what their personality traits are, not through psychometric testing, just through talking to them, identifying the bits that they should amplify and make that their persona. So that it's an authentic way of behaving. And those personas will change depending on the situation you're in. Um, You know, and it's, it's being authentic allows you to talk to anyone and people don't fear you because that's our base 
uh, at the base of everything is fear. We are always fearful when we meet people for the first time, when we're involved in situations, we're afraid of lots of things. And one of the things we're afraid of, especially in these day and age in business, is that we're going to be had over in some way or another. Um, authentic, being authentic, is a way to overcome that. Of course. And um, it's, uh, there's, there's so much actually to pick up on on what you just said there. Mm. And it makes me question, I like to believe that I'm quite authentic in the way that I behave um and and the way that i come across but at the same time what you said resonates with me and that i know that i behave differently in different situations and with mm. different people as well um you know some it's interesting how when i interact with some people they'll bring out like a playful playful part of my persona um and others will will almost have a negative impact on the way i behave and i believe that it's not me and it's them but it really does come back to me. And I suppose it also comes back to fear, like, like, like you say, really. I'm able to just sort of um, probe a bit more on, so is that our basic instinct around fear and why it's so prevalent in, in, in trying to determine why, the way we behave? Yeah, sure. I mean, you've got to take back. We are a, you know, how we are is from our base instincts and our base behaviours all from way back in time. Uh, just like, um, the verbal language is not our first language. Body language is our first language. That's how we used to communicate before we could speak. Yeah. And as we've come through time, we've evolved, but we've kept hold of parts of our primal days uh, in our internal systems and our external behaviour that have, have, through time, have, you know, have, have affected us in a positive way. Um, one of those things that we've kept all the way through is the feeling to protect ourselves because we're at the top of the food chain. You know, that's where we sit, but we shouldn't be there because there's much more powerful creatures on the planet than us. The reason we're there is because we've got something they haven't got, which is the capability for original fault. So we are able to build toys around us and armour around us that protect us and puts us at the top of the chain. But we've still got that inbuilt fear and we know that there are more powerful things out there than us. And because now we don't have to fight saber-toothed tigers or anything, it comes out in what we call anxiety and, and fear. Um, and then what all they are are defensive mechanisms that are inbuilt in us that we cannot you know, we can minimise them, but we can't get rid of them. And we don't want to get rid of them because it's, it's our protection system. But that's our default. You know, there's two systems in our bodies that when we meet people and, you know, I'm quite happy to say what I do is I want to activate in people the vagus nerve. Because if I, cannot, if I can get the vagus nerve to go into operation then it releases hormones into the body like oxytocin, which is the cuddle drug, which makes people want to like you. Whereas if I come over negatively, then I activate a completely different system, which ends up in fight or flight in some form. And, but that's our, you know, that's our natural instinct. When we first see someone for the first time, that's the first thing we look at is not their face. Everyone thinks that. It's not. It's how big are they? Because we want to know if it comes, you know, if it if it comes to it, have I got to run away from it or can I fight it? 
And so that's our defensive mechanisms. Um, and, you know, and so we have to overcome that. And a lot of being authentic helps you to overcome that. Got you. Got you. And um, so if, if that resonates with people, because I know that if I'd had this conversation maybe a few years ago when I was doing or carrying out daily work that mm. probably maybe didn't fit with what was natural to me, and you kind of do find that you lose your way a bit in, in life and, and what have you, and I feel that I've sort of been different personas and different people. Mm. Um, what, what sort of top tips are there to sort of find, find your way back? Is it to have a conversation and, and, and to, to, to speak to the right people, or, or is yeah, there a yeah, way I, of sort of self-reflecting? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, you really, I mean, the greatest book, or one of the greatest books, there's a few, but the one that I always go back to and that I use a lot in my training was written way way back in history it's called the art of war and it's been developed and you can get versions of it for business the art of business etc but in that he says if you want to win every battle you've got to know yourself and know your adversary and if you do that you'll win every time and what i think the key message of that is is knowing yourself and being self-critical of yourself but in a positive way if that makes sense so you know understanding what your strengths but also what your weaknesses are and that's all I do with people I I sit with them and I talk with them I think you know I do work with people who have had psychometric testing and they're fine but I don't like them because I think they're too generic they put people in boxes Mm -hmm. and I'm a firm believer that people don't fit into boxes people are individuals and everyone is different and I think a lot of the problems we get especially when we talk about hiring and firing is, you know, it's, it's too easy just to rely on something that a computer has generated because you're red or yellow or whatever, yeah, you know, course. and it, it, it's, it's part of the culture I'm afraid in businesses of delegating management to systems rather than people. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it makes me think of uh, that there's a film called Divergent. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the film, but it's based yeah. on a book and um, people are separated into factions based on their personality types. Yeah. And uh, there are the, the people that don't fit into any of the boxes and they, they're divergent. They are emotional. They are driven, et cetera, et cetera. And that's kind of how I've often felt people people may sort of uh listen and sort of think what box i may fit in but i'm always red i always fit in the red box i'm always the driven uh ambitious f what anyone else thinks type of person but in reality i may test as that but i do really care what other people think and i do care about their feelings and and what have you and you know i am i am a human being (laughs) uh you know and sometimes it, it i feel when I'm pigeonholed like that, I do feel like I'm I'm the machine, the you know the the the, the cranked up engine that's that's sort of whirring all the time and a big bundle of energy that wants to go out and do stuff. And I do recognise that in myself, but I do I do also notice what my weaknesses are, and particularly. And it's interesting actually because when you go through that development process, and certainly something I've seen, your your life does change forever. Um, and I, I, that sounds sort of quite dramatic, but a lot of businesses will hire people who are similar to them, for example. And I've recently just added, added additional people to my business and I couldn't have hired people that are more different and think more differently to me. And that is part of, and that, that resonated to me when you said about the art of war, about how important that is that actually you have a diverse 
range of people. And ever since I've sort of been through that development process is actually I surround myself and I'm much more comfortable with people who are totally different to me because actually that rounds me off a lot more as a person. But also it means as a business, we can offer a much more rounded and more bulletproof solution, I suppose. And that's why it's important in business, would you say, Bob? Yeah, I mean, collaboration. Um, that's another thing, going back to being in the forest, you know, collaborate and prosper. Why do you have to have, you know, opponents in business? You know, look at how you could work together. And a great example here is uh, dog walking is a big thing here because there's a, you know, there is a lot of dogs here in the forest. And there's at least three or four businesses. And a, a new business wanted to join the networking group. And rather than oppose it like they could have done, one of the people said, no, no. And they now work together. So that woman has now got resilience when she wants to go on holiday. There's someone else can walk the dogs that she was walking. And I just find that so inspiring that, you know, we can collaborate. We can, I, you know, I, I'm quite open with what I do and I will work with people. And I'm a consultant, so I tend to work with a lot of different people anyway. And I just like that way of working. Um, you know, what we all do, it's not new. We've not invented it. And so, you know, why should we be so precious with what we do? That's just my way of thinking. And um, and so that fits very well with me. I'm sorry, I've lost a train of thought where we were there. Sorry, Pete, yeah. I've got an attention. <laughs> no, no worries at all. And it, uh, collaboration is massively important. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, I I have found when I first started out working for myself, you feel quite protective over what you feel is your little box, I suppose, your comfort blanket or your your personal space, I suppose, around what your business is. Um, but one of the things I found, and it's interesting because I do some networking. I, I network with a group called BNI, and people have got different f- feelings and thoughts about BNI. It is a lockout group and it's a referral group. But you know what? Out of that group, I, they're fantastic, the one I'm a member of, absolutely fantastic. And the members are really, really collaborative. But what's interesting is actually the companies that are closest to what I do and the closest businesses to operate in the way I do and the ones that you would say may conflict or, or be a conflict of interest, actually the collaboration opportunities mm. far, far outweigh the companies that have got nothing to do with me because mm. what's interesting is is we really under, we're so close, we really understand what each other do. And actually when we speak to clients who have a need, we can actually articulate, I can articulate so much better the companies that are really close to what I offer and that they may be the right solution for them. But in the end, in the end, the, the business that we pass each other and we collaborate and, and refer business to each other to support each other, um, it far outweighs what we're able to to pass to businesses that are totally unrelated, so to speak. So, um, yeah, definitely, definitely a top tip there. Um, OK, so we'll move on to the second area, which is around conviction, Bob. Um, are you able to explain explain conviction and why it's such an imp- important interpersonal well, skill? it's... The thing about it is, especially with leadership training, um, what I do, you know, quite a bit of leadership development and that type of thing. And it's about believing in what you're saying, having conviction. And I'll I'll give you an example because, you know, it's the best way for me to articulate it is um, years ago um, I formed, well, I was involved in football, coaching football, children. And because uh, my kids were young and you just, you just, I think you're involved in it, aren't you at the moment? You just get involved in it. That's right. Yeah. Um, and I didn't like the way it was being run. And so I thought I'd do it myself. 
so I went away and got my coaching badges, got up to level two, uh, UEFA B, uh, and started my own football club. Um, and then started a disability, a girls section, and then finally a disability section. And at that time, the FA had started a thing called Charter Standard. And we were one of the first clubs in Essex to get it for the main club. And then I went for it for the disabled part of it as well, because we called that something distant, a uh, different. And um, I was invited to go to the FA uh, by my county FA to the proper FA up in London to give a presentation to try and win a grant to start this project off or to keep this project going. And it went great. It went great. They, they, I, it was the right time. It was that thing again, the right person at the right time saying the right things. But it nearly fell apart because I got quite angry inside because their expectations were so much lower. And the guy said to me, one of the panel said to me, so what's your ambitions? So I said, well, the same as it would be for an able-bodied child to play for their county and to play for their country eventually and to be developed the best they can be. And he just said, can't be done. And so my reply was, watch me. And they gave me the grant and lo and behold, one of the boys from that went on to play for his country. And so, you know, it's conviction. I could stand there with conviction and just say, watch me, because I truly believe in what I was saying. And you will see people, the biggest uh, giveaway with insincere people or people who lack conviction is incongruence. Their mouth might be saying the right words, but if you really know what you're looking for, everything else is telling you it's not right. And that's what I see, you know, in negotiations, because as you know, I sit a lot in negotiations. I'm the guy that sits at the back who's never introduced. And I just sit there and they send them out, Ollie, they have a break. And I say to them, no, don't, you can go further. They're being insincere because that's what I do. Of course it does. Uh, I've, I've forgotten actually, I've forgotten actually how awkward it makes me feel when <laughs> I'm not speaking to you. <laughs> I don't. It's no, not, no, no, I'm joking. It's I'm joking. one of those things. I bet, I, bet, I, bet, I bet people say that all the time, though, to be fair, don't they? Because yeah, yeah. As, as, I think, I think uh, we're, we're wired up. We're wired up to be authentic and to have conviction. And that, this is how I see it. But we're also, part of the fear element is, is that we kind of fear a little bit laying mm. ourselves out bare as well. So there is... That I think that's why there's the white, I suppose that's probably why there's the little white lies that are there as well. Um, well, yeah. And, and, and you're on another subject there, you know, uh, lying's had a bad press. You know, it's not all bad because okay. we all do it. We all do it. You know, business is built around that, isn't it? You know, you go, like I say, negotiations, you go into a negotiation, you're not going to sit there and say, well, this is what we want. You don't. No, it's you, true. You, you hedge around it or you... You know, because if you look at it, what is lying? Mm. It's everything that isn't the truth. Yeah. And so then what is the truth? Well, the truth is personal. It's not, you know, what we think is true. Other people might not believe because of, you know, all different belief systems and things like that. And so we, we are a very strange thing, human beings. We don't, we've got this thing called ego defense where everything we do is okay. It's only the other people that are wrong. Yeah. And so, you know, we we really hate liars, but then we do it ourselves. But it's all right for us to do it. Yeah. <laughs> liars got a bad press, you know, and yeah. uh I 
you know, when you, I, as you know, I was in the police and you in the police and everyone lies to you there. Doesn't yeah, make them all bad people. If you were in their position, you'd do exactly the same. Yeah. And it's just accepting that and not getting hit up about it and understanding that, you know, lying in all its different forms, overstatement, understatement, bullshitting, all of those things are just terms, you know, are just forms of lying, but they're just part of being human. And if you've ever seen that Jim Carrey film, you know, the, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but where you couldn't lie, you'd never have a relationship with anyone if you told the truth all the time. So interesting. It's like you read my mind bringing up a Jim Carrey reference because when you were talking, <laughs> when you were talking about conviction, I was thinking about Jim Carrey. There's a story of him when he, like when he was setting out as a comedian and as an actor, he wrote himself a check for a million pounds or a million dollars even. Yeah. Um, because he had the conviction that he would be a successful actor. Yeah. Um, and uh, that that was the story or the anecdote that came to mind when you were talking about that. And yeah, it's so, yeah. so strange. It's like you plant things in my head, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, other thing is, the other thing about being authentic and, and, and all of this we're talking about is it's self-awareness, which is on there as well. But it's about, you know, I mean, I'm not a great fan of the guy in general, but Alan Sugar said a, a brilliant thing, which I think is, you know, someone said, what's what would you describe leadership as? And he said, it's the ability to manage people who are better than you. And I think that's right. You know, as you said, you know, collaboration is great because you get all different people with all different skill sets together and team together, everyone achieves more. And that's so true. Yeah. You know, I've just started a business with two guys, not because I want to, but they want to. And I can help them because I've got a certain skill set that fits within what they want to do. Yeah, and awesome. so that's how it works. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Okay. So we'll, we'll talk a bit more about self-awareness. I was actually thinking about the negotiation thing. Yeah. I was reading, um, never split the difference by Chris Voss. Yeah. I don't know. Have you, I, I don't know if you read it. No, I think I've not got the right first name. I know his surname's Voss, but that was a really, really interesting book about negotiation. So he was an FBI hostage negotiator mm. and one of the things that he said that i suppose because res- you pick things out often there's a lot of information you kind of pick out what really sort of resonates with you and one of the things that he said and there were lots of different techniques in there but one of the things he said that i found really really interesting it's a little bit away from self-awareness but it's it's understanding when you're entering into a negotiation what is it that that person really really wants and what is it that they're leaning towards because they're not going to tell you exactly what it is they want but you've got to try and work your way around it, which I suppose is obviously in sim- in very layman's terms is, is similar to what you've done in the past. Mm. Um, but inter- sometimes there's little hints and, and what have you. So it was interesting. I was reading that at the time and I was actually in a negotiation with someone on a, on a business deal. I, I shan't say which because it'll be really yeah. clear on what it was. But yeah. The language they used was I, I really felt like they weren't listening to me. I was getting really, really upset at the way that had impacted me and that why weren't they listening and why weren't they doing the deal that they wanted me to do? Mm. And I was reading that book and I read the language they, the, the other person that I was trying to negotiate with who was standing really firm on their price. They weren't going to reduce their price. I was buying a service from them. And um, I felt because I'd bought more than what had originally been the deal, I thought the, the extra that I'll spend in there add more of a discount, so to speak. And I couldn't understand why. And that what they came back with was around that they valued their time, they didn't want to yeah. discount it, et cetera, et yeah. cetera. And what I realized was, and, and that 
at the, earlier on in the deal where I'd forgotten that actually I'd wasted their time and I'd totally forgotten that I'd wasted their time a little bit earlier in the deal. Mm. And it's so interesting actually to think, I think, what is it they want out of this? And actually I realised that I could have argued with them till the cows came home. I was not getting a better price because they mm. were so staunch on the fact that they valued their time and that they were holding on to the fact that I'd actually, they felt I'd wasted their time earlier on in the deal, um, mm. which was fine. But I learned to actually realise that that was the case. And then sometimes you just got to cut your losses, haven't you, I suppose? Certainly. And it is about, in those sort of situations, those dynamics, it's like poker players, you know, and I've done a bit of work with a couple of poker players. They've all got tells. They, they know that and they want you to look at them and tell them what their tells are so they can try and stop doing them, which is impossible, really. <laughs> but, um, it, you know, in negotiations, there's things to look out for. And funny enough, the, the organisation that we've both done some work for, I got a, you know, I did some work with uh, one of the, the franchises and the guy come back to me and says, uh, do a bit of a de, you know, debrief about six months later and just says, how's it going? He says, oh, you, you saved us some time. You haven't, saved, you haven't made us better salespeople, but you've, you've saved us time. So I said, well, how is that? He said, well, we went to a sales meeting and it was quite obvious that 10 minutes into the meeting that they weren't interested just by the words they were using. Cause as you know, a lot of what I do is about the words people use. And so he said, so we just said to him, you're not interested, are you? You know, at this time or whatever they said, and they called the meeting to a close. And so he said, we saved an hour. And when you add up those hours that they save. So it, it's about that. It's about reading people, reading people's intentions because all this thing about, you know, emotions, that everything we do is our emotions coming out. You can read people's emotions through their facial expressions. Actually, that's not quite right. We all have feelings. They don't always become emotions. And a lot of the time, when we do show emotions, they're manufactured emotions. In other words, they're done from the conscious mind rather than the unconscious mind. And it's, I call it impression management. So that, and that is a persona. Yeah, so the impression yeah. management will be there, the persona. And so if you are, if you've got that ability to read people, you will see the persona and identify the parts of it and through that piece together the personality that's below it. Mm. It's so complex, isn't it? Because I, you know, when you say that, I know I do that relationship management or artificial management. You know, uh, when, when we're talking, I know, uh, you know, I know I know to nod my head. I know that that's the right thing to do. And I probably do it more on video than I would do if we were in person because sure. it feels like when you're on online and on video, you've got to over-amplify almost. Even yeah. I'm doing it with my hand now. I mm. probably wouldn't do it to the same extent. And I think that's partly probably why Zoom calls and stuff are so tiring as well because you're yeah. making so much effort to, to have mm. the right body language. But I know that um, I, know that I, I put stuff on and sometimes i think is that insincere and you kind of second guess yourself so yeah okay we'll move on to self-awareness in a bit because i think it's going to come up in the other bits that we're talking about as well so the third area is around listening which uh, is interesting because we've kind of been touching a little bit on listening and, and looking out for words but are you able to just elaborate a bit more on why listening is so important and and you can explain as well the different different types of listening i suppose as yeah. well yeah yeah i mean listening is everything and uh, the, the, the thing that I use is ALF, always listen first. The, the thing about it is, is that we're defensive creatures. We've said that earlier. And so we, 
part of that defensiveness is not wanting to share stuff. You know, if I was to walk up to you, unless I'm Darren Brown or something, if I walk up to you in the middle of the street and say, you tears, give me your wristwatch, you won't do it. Having been with you for 15 or 20 minutes and, you know, we've got that likability, trust type thing going on, then I might be able to get you to give me your watch. But so, you know, there, there is ways to do that. And listening to people, they will tell you rather than, because we, part of that thing about being defensive is we don't like to be asked questions. And when you're asking questions, the, the chances are, unless you've done 100% research and you know everything about that person, you may hit on something which you suddenly see by their behaviour is they don't want to go there. Best way, in no matter what sphere I'm in, whether it's you know doing the work I do with companies about investigating when things have gone wrong, people have been you know done stupid things or whatever, it's always about don't ask them questions, get them to tell you. Ask them an open question and say, so, you know, in sales, and we did that, I'm sure we did that with you, rather than go to people and say, right, you know, I understand you want to buy a truck, well, this is what I've got. Go to them and say, so what's your issue? Tell me. You know, I'm not going to assume anything. You know, I'm not, I'm not coming here assuming that you're going to buy from me, but it'd be really interesting if you could tell me what your needs are, because then I might be able to help you. Yeah. And let them talk to you. And then what you do is you listen. And when you are listening, they will tell you what is the most important thing because they'll use emphasis, they'll use, they'll slow down or they'll put a smile on their face at certain parts or you'll see changes in their behaviour and you just note them. And then you use that to get them to tell you more. And eventually they'll tell you everything without you having to ask very many questions at all. They'll be happy because we haven't made it about you because that's a, that's a problem when we're having conversations especially sales conversations, we're the person in charge. So if you've got that seesaw of power, if you're the powerful person, that must mean they're the powerless person, which actually, in the scheme of a sales conversation, isn't the way it should be. It should be the other way around because they've got the power to buy or not. You haven't got the power to make them buy. The best thing to do, like I said to the company we both worked with, get in a position where people want to buy from you. Because then if you've got that, they're advocates for the company and they'll come back. Yeah. Yeah, some, sometimes the deal the deal might not be right, but it may yeah. come back at some point, mightn't it? And that, that's it, a long-term relationship is, is hugely important. Uh, one of the things I, I sometimes struggle, and just reflecting on what you were saying about listening, and I like to think that I listen, but I get feedback from my wife that I'm shit at it. Um, <laughs> Maggie, bless her, uh, if you're listening yet. Yeah. I do listen when you tell me that I'm not listening. But I, I suppose that's just just sort of the standard stuff, right? In that if I don't, I suppose I switch off if I think that I'm not going to get any value or what have you, which is probably feedback for her as well. Um, <laughs> I've got to be careful what I say because I'm going to end up I'm going to end up with raw dinner, um, <laughs> and no one wants that. But no, I think um, I think the point I was wanted to make was sometimes I feel really uncomfortable asking questions. And I have to really think about how I word them because it's so easy. I I think I'm very thoughtful in the way that I approach wording a question because often I don't want to, it's so easy to lead. And I keep batting around here as I keep asking the question to you because I'm looking for some reassurance here. But when you go to ask a question, you can lead people in the way that you're thinking by the way you word the question. Um, If you think they're doing something wrong, 
you can insinuate yeah. that they're doing something wrong. Yeah. And actually, a lot of the time, people are just doing the best job they know how to do anyway with the exactly. tools they've been given. So I, when you try and find a word or a question that is almost as unassuming as possible, but going to maximize the potential information you'll receive mm. back, um, that was one of the probably one of the key takeaways I took away from the training that I did with you well, it was around that, that if you ask the right question and wait and listen, uh, it's very important. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, le- levels of listening, what you're talking about is pretend listening, and we all do that. We do that in conversations because, you know, our brain is saying, I want to do something else. It's not engaging enough. So basically, if you're seeing people's eyes wandering and that when you're talking to them, you've either got, you've got to do something to bring it back because they're not listening. But when, uh, conversely, when you're doing it with other people, then the things that you're doing when we're talking, and you say you nod on purpose, but you don't, you know, it, it's fair to say here that with the organisation we work with, I can, you know, you were one of them much better at this than other people. You've got natural empathy. Not everyone has got that. Thanks. And so, you know, and it comes over in the way you present, and I've heard some of your other podcasts, and it just comes over. It's just the way you are. So you as an individual don't need to don't need to put anything on top of it you don't need impression management because the impression is there just let it go but by listening you can hear from people what their you know what their faults what their passions are they don't have to tell you you just hear it then all you have to do is pick up on the bits and with you know the human beings we're great mimics we and this is a part of communication that a lot of people don't understand is it's all about getting a commonality of perception i call it between you and the person you're speaking to and how you get that is by watching them and listening and then what you do is you start to pick up on their behaviors and when you see two people i mean a great example is of uh, mimicking is if you see two ladies who lunch out at the mall so you go to Blue Water and there's all these people who've got too much money, they don't have to work, and they're there with all their shopping bags and you see them sitting down and they are like carbon copies of one another. The hand gestures are the same, they nod the same. The more you are with people and the more you become like them, the more they like you. Wow, it's and like so, you, you know, mirroring, mirroring is something which I practice all the time. When I'm with people, I start to mimic their gestures. I do it consciously. But we do it unconsciously. But in the sort of situations that I'm in, I don't have the time to do that. So I have to maybe nudge them a little bit. But that's what we do. And we do it naturally, you know, and that's how you can tell, I can tell how close a couple is by how close in their behaviours they are to one another. Yeah, got you. And funnily enough, one of the greatest sources of of mine is reality TV. I'm probably one of the only guys in business who, who can claim credit for watching reality TV. And one of the best shows for this type of thing, believe it or not, is Married at First Sight, where they do relationships in the wrong way round. Yeah. So they start with not knowing the person, but marrying them. And then halfway through the process, they decide that they want to be friends. And it's a really strange thing. But you see, and I can tell by watching that program, I can tell the ones who are going to, I don't think very many of them survive anyway, but the ones who are more in tune because they're becoming like one another. And you must know that with the relationships that you've seen with other people and their partners, 
Yeah, definitely, definitely. And you, it, it's strange, isn't it? Because Maggie and I, we we are like chalk and cheese, but it's almost like yin yin and yang, and yeah. it, it feels natural, you know. Then I, hopefully, I don't speak out of turn. We've been ten years, you know. It's like, uh, you know, we, we, and we've been through. And when I say we've been through some stuff, we've been through some really rotten, tough stuff. Children, mm. you know. That also, you know, all the sort of everyday stuff that young couples go through, we've been through it and we've come out the other end. And um, I think one of the things we reflect on is actually how sad would that be? Because you kind of sometimes we're so busy doing and not just relaxing together because life is so busy and gets in the way. I think one of the things we both reflect on have the conversation that isn't it sad when older couples have been through all the tough stuff and then actually they've kind of just departed from you know the emotional connection kind of has disappeared over time because they've become uh it's, it's become more um platonic i suppose um it's the right terminology as, as the relationship's gone on and that's something that we discuss and try and actively try and actively overcome because it's something that we don't want to have happen um but you know life's tough and it gets in the way that you know we have the children so they take priority over us their needs are come first um, and, and we try and give them the, the best we can. But I suppose we also have are conscious that um, it's important for them as well that we, we keep a good relationship too. So, uh, sure, but, but relationships change. Mm. And just because people, you know, I've been married 38 years now, and I wouldn't <laughs> say that our marriage is the same as when we first married mm-hmm. because you go through those stages. And like I say, with that uh, married at first sight, it's a good way to see it because it's compressed into eight weeks. So they go through so much in eight weeks of the process, you know, and they push one another, you know, so they're married, but they're saying, do you like me? And they don't even know if they like one another. And it's, it's, it's really interesting to watch because it's all skewed yeah. up and it doesn't work because of that fact. But, you know, relationships will bloom and you'll have highs and lows in them. Mm. And, you know, you've had them in 10, I've had many in 38 years, but, you build it, it changes and the sort of expectations and the commonality of perception of what it is changes with it so although you look at it and you know and i suppose in a way what you've just said is a little bit biased because you're looking at it as a relationship after 20 years should be the same as a relationship after 10 years but it doesn't have to be but it doesn't make it a bad relationship it's just a different relationship of course You know, and some people get to that stage and just say, well, we've not got that, you know, we're not mirroring one another or we're not matching one another, so we might as well go our own ways. And other people say, well, you know, and that's, and I think everyone in life uh, comes to that, especially in marriage, is where you say, well, you know, this is what it is and we're both happy with what it is and you carry on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and that doesn't make it bad. Yeah. It doesn't make it the same as when you first married, when you've got all that excitement and it's the children and everything. It's just a different place. Yeah, of course. Yeah, interesting. I've not really thought about it like that. Expanding my brain, Bob. I like it. Um, <laughs> right. Area four, likability and trust, which kind of ties in quite nicely with being married, I guess. Um, yeah. yeah likability and trust. So they're, they're obviously, well, I say obviously, but they're, they're clearly very important in developing and being, mm. being great interpersonally. Um, are you able to elaborate a bit more? And, and why yeah. you've combined likability and trust, I suppose that they, they int- are intrinsically linked? They are. 
and um, they they tie in with how our brain works. So like likeability is thing. It's a system one brain thinking. It's the emotional brain, and likeability can be done on all sorts of things. It's you know how the person looks, how they fit, what you think they should be. Um, and it's an instant thing. It's you either like someone because our two base settings are friend or foe. So if someone's a friend, then they're likable. If they're not, then they're not likable. And that's great. But what happens is, and I see this in all the time because, you know, as you know, I get involved in fraud, um, mitigation and that type of thing, is when people get defrauded a lot this time, it's because they confuse liking with trust. I have worked with people who I didn't like, but they were trustworthy. Yeah. And on the other hand, I've worked with people who were likable but weren't trustworthy. Yeah. So they're not interchangeable. Likable is the first thing. And then basically you move from there. So likable will get you in the door if you're a salesman. Yeah. Okay. Respect comes next. If they respect you as a person and you're likable, then they won't feel threatened and they're more likely to buy from you. Okay. Trust will come because whatever you say, you then carry through on. And that will be at the end. And trust is built on credibility. And credibility is in the name. It's building up credit. Yeah. And so there are, they are three different things that get totally confused. And the whole premise of fraud is built on making yourself likable. Because we then get the vagus nerve going and the sort of happy drugs coming into the system. And we're more, me- more malleable. So that's the second time you've mentioned that. I, I didn't pick it up first time because I obviously had something on my agenda at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the vagus nerve, can you just explain that a little bit more, what, what that is? It, it, vagus is in Ella, uh, Las Vegas. Vegas. No, it's vagus. It's a nerve. It's called vagus because it's, um, it wanders throughout the body like a vagabond. That's where oh, it okay. comes from. But it, it's, it's connected to all your major organs from your brain. And um, it's responsible for releasing... Um, stuff into your system and if you've when you get cut so we talked about earlier about the seesaw so you've got um, power person at one end powerless at the other what I try to get people to do is to understand that you can make the seesaw sit and move towards the middle because we can't have two powerful people but what you can do is make one of them comfortable and if people are comfortable then their defenses come down they start releasing all the happy hormones and they are in a better place they've got the warm feelings they're not feeling uh, under attack or anything and they're you know and that's what we aim for we aim for being comfortable we we appreciate we can't all be the powerful person in the room but that's why we don't like these dictatorial management systems because we don't have ownership of it most good companies now realize that you've got to make staff feel comfortable and give them a bit of a say let them let them feel even if it's not the case that they've got a say in the company and how the outcomes are coming because yeah. then they, if they're comfortable and the bonus of that is happy people don't steal from you. <laughs> so that's yeah, the bonus. <laughs> so there is a link between profitability and security. Yeah. And on. it's being su- comfortable, making your staff feel comfortable. Yeah. I suppose when you say steal, it automatically resonates with people actually literally thieving from you. But I suppose, I suppose people, 
steal from employers all the time, whether it be extra breaks or yeah. time in the toilet. Essentially, a lot of people are paid by time, aren't they? They're paid by yeah. the hour, so to speak. Yeah. So as soon as they're wasting time, they're stealing stealing time as well, I suppose. Yeah. So, yeah, interesting. Well, the funny thing is, there's been some research done that I saw the other day that people working at home are working harder. People are on, you know, who are being sent home, and it's because they've got they've got a bit of a decision. They've got a choice, and they and so they choose to work. Mm. Whereas in the office, they you know the choice is they're there and they've got the work and they work less. Believe it or not. Yeah, good. I I I can't disagree with that at all. And to be honest, since lockdown, strangely, I, I suppose it's probably something different that drives that, but. I've not worked harder since since lockdown happened. I've never worked harder than I did. And I think it was the level of uncertainty yeah. that it was about. There was so much uncertainty. It was almost like I was driving and compelling myself on because I thought if all this falls flat and fails, I don't want it to be through lack of effort. Hmm. And it felt like every time I took a, a stop, which in reality you need to because otherwise you burn out. But every time I took a stop, it was like I was shirking, you know. Hmm. And... um yeah, I don't, I don't know. But it, I, literally, it, it was like it was compelling to, to work. And I, I guess that's one of the challenges employers need to look at with people working from home is those sort of blurred lines of what's work and what's home and mm-hmm. you know, people almost pushing themselves the other way because we kind of have that cultural outlook of uh, at home in your slippers and your shorts and T-shirt and yeah. not really working. Uh, it, there's almost like feels like there's a need to justify yourself. Yeah, but I think... Um... You know, I know for a fact, like it's say in the centre of London, a lot of companies, big companies, are now thinking, well, why do we drag these people in like 60 miles every day? Because we're being as productive outside of that. But the problem that a lot of them will have is if you're going to do that, the thing about human beings, we, we're what are called field dependent. So we, we, like, we, we have to know what the length and width of the field is that we can operate in. And if we don't have that, if we take away the field, then we just run all over the place. And so if you're going to let people have more, you know, have a bigger field, so be at home, then you're going to have to manage them better. Yeah, yeah. And that's where a lot of companies come down. And where we come to my big bugbear is that the way, the reason that companies fail and don't do so well is that managers don't manage yeah. because they're laden down with doing all things that aren't managed. The people are the most important part of a business and if you look after the people, the business will thrive. Yeah. Fair point. Fantastic. Key takeaway, that one. Um, so fifth area is self-awareness, which we've touched on a little bit in some of our other conversations. But, you know, I, I know it's obviously important. I suppose I don't, don't know what the right question is to word it. But explain a bit more. Obviously, you, you've got this deep, deeper understanding of what self-awareness is and, and why it's so important, Bob. Well, self-awareness is... In my opinion, there's two sides to us. So we've got the internal workings of ourselves. And that's what I think by self-awareness, understanding how our body works. Because what we show outside is just the physical representation of what's going on inside. And so if you really want to be self-aware, you have to understand how your body works, how your brain works, because then you won't get frustrated you will understand why you get angry sometimes and then you can manage it. So understanding how the brain works. And I work with a fantastic guy who is a professor and he knows everything about how the brain works and everything. And we've actually done a model of the brain and we've, we've, we've put the brain 
against a, a building organization so you can see all the different levels of the brain and how they all work together um, and it's, it's it really works because it sort of articulates how I feel about it because what we don't we're not aware of or not many people are aware of is that we've got senses that are outside but we've also got senses inside and one of the main ones that um, is called interoception interoception is how you, you know is probably a better way to say it and the interoception system is how our brain and our body manages the functions of our body. And so understanding that, you can then understand how emotions are formed and how they push their way out into the real world. And so, you know, knowing yourself is not sort of spiritual knowing yourself, although that helps, but it's actually understanding how your body works and how the things you do reflect on the outside because if you understand how they are inside, you can manage them coming on out. Yeah, no, I, t- I t- totally agree with that. And it's something that I've, that I've focused on. They gave me talking about me again, but I suppose it's my only uh, way of talking about self-awareness, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but yeah, sorry, there's a little bit of a paradox there somewhere. <laughs> One of the things that I know, I know that I feel demotivated or tired, particularly when there's certain elements of my role that I need to do. And it's because of, I've learned through personal development and, and self-awareness and listening, I suppose, to, to myself and the way I behave that I will avoid doing certain things. I'll reduce, minimize the amount of time I have to spend doing them because I know they're a little bit painful mm. and I don't really enjoy them. Whereas I'll fill my time with the things that I do enjoy doing and do it naturally. And sometimes it's interesting, particularly when like you go into business and you've not got I suppose when you're in a role or in a, in a job and you've got enforced areas that you have to focus on, you kind of have to do them. And I suppose some days you'll feel like it, it's a rubbish day and some day will be a good day, depending on how mm. that falls within within what what works well for you or not. Um, but certainly when you're in, uh, in business on your own, uh, there's this tendency to overdevelop and really, really overdevelop the stuff you enjoy doing whilst not paying attention to the stuff you're not very good at doing. Um, and it's something that I have to, uh, it takes a lot of effort, actually. It takes a lot of effort. And uh, there is large proportions of the of the business that, that don't particularly, you know, it's not that they don't interest me because I do value the impact that they have and they're valuable parts of the business. But they're just, they're things that if, if I, I wouldn't miss them if I didn't have to do them, but I know that they're an absolute mm. crucial necessity to be done. So therefore you do them. But I suppose the beauty is, is it if I'm growing a business that's going to grow into people and people doing other work and what have you, they're the first things that I look for other people to do because there's going to be people out there who are going to thrive on doing those things. Yeah. Yeah. And that goes back to what you said earlier about, you know, not being afraid to have people to do different things and mm. know that you can't do everything yourself. Yeah. I mean, self-awareness, there is a, there's an equation of um, what behaviour is, and it's behaviour equals the function of a person in an environment. And so it's all situational based. And so being self-aware is aware of yourself as a person, you know, how you, how you look on the outside, but also what f- functions you've got on the inside. So, you know, I'm never going to win 100 metres at the Olympics. Because I'm just not going to do it. But I'm, you know, so you've got to be aware of what your limitations are, and your body, you know, is is knowing your body makes you function better. Yeah. You know, I have medical conditions, and so I know how I can function better. 
And so it's, it's about that. And it's about being aware of understanding that, you know, your body functions in a certain way so that when you do get nervous, you'll get, you're nervous for a reason. It's just natural. And not because if you get nervous about being nervous, you're going to get anxious. If you get anxious about being anxious, you're going to get fearful and it just goes up, doesn't it? So that's what I think of as self-awareness is understanding how your body works. Because I've got medical conditions, I've had to learn that, you know, I have to give injections to myself every day and I have to know how to do that. And so, and I, I know why I have to have the injections. I know how I feel if I don't have them. So it's, it's, you know, it's about knowing these things. So self-awareness to me is different to what a lot of people see it, but I'm also a great believer in mindfulness. Mm -hmm. It's understanding the impact that you have on the environment around you. Yeah. And managing how you do that so you tread lightly it's very interesting actually because that, um that's just brought back a memory of uh and i know the words because i remember it resonated with me the first time around but be aware of the shadow you cast yeah yeah very yeah. interesting uh yeah. very interesting okay cool and the final area then intelligent con- conversation <laughs> yeah put my teeth in intelligent conversationalist yeah i mean i've worked in many fields doing many different things from sales and, you know, talking about sales, if we could just go away. I can remember when I worked for the company that we've got the shared experience with. Mm-hmm. And I don't advertise. You know, I, I'm probably the world's worst businessman. If people want me, they find me. And I moved here to the forest thinking that I was going to, you know, retire. But more people find me. And so I carry on. And a lady, Karen, from uh, that company uh, found me. And I went to see her. And she explained what she wanted and I just said you do know me don't you you've obviously found me on the internet from somewhere so you've obviously done a bit of research for me you do know that I don't do all this stuff and she said that's exactly why I want you because I want you to do something different and so that's when I got you know that's why when I was with you and and even so with that organization now until lockdown was on I was going to be writing programs for them advanced communications for sales yeah. for their academy and the, the reason that um you know it's all built around this concept of how people communicate with one another and the type of conversations we have i've quantified them into three types of conversations and there's the first one the first level is a transactional conversation it's just a one-sided thing whereas you want something from me and so you talk to me and ask me what you want to know and I will give that back and I'll give you the information you need and off you'll go. That's an I conversation because there's only one person benefiting from it and that's the person who's doing the talking and getting what they want. Okay, and so that's a transactional. Then the next level up is a transitional conversation. And a transitional conversation is a move away from like a scripted thing. So I've got it in my mind what I want and I come away with it to a more two-way conversation. And I would say that most business conversations sit there and they're an us conversation. So we're talking to one another, but we've both got something we want to get from it. And as long as we both get something from it, we're happy. So that's an us conversation. Then the one that I try to teach people to do is a transformative conversation, which is a head and heart, and it's a we conversation. And it's where you 
strategically and tactically show that other person that you know and using you know building a bond with them but sometimes nudging them a little bit to get that bond going um, and that's a transformative conversation and when you can get people in the transformative state they are more open to other suggestions and they're more open to listening to other uh, ideals and it's you know in in different in different circumstances it brings people down so you can use it for conflict resolution you can use it for all different things because no matter what area you're working in a conversation remains a conversation it's got a start where you introduce yourself it's got a middle where you do the transaction and it's got an ending and they're all the same you just model the bits that go in the middle to suit the situation where you're using it yeah like it. So I, think it, I, I need a bit more co- i think i need a bit more training on that particularly with the podcast it'd be good if i can get transformative conversations regularly <laughs> The, the thing about it is, is that it's just about quantifying things and it's then about understanding the difference between them. And, you know, they're just my ideas. And, and you know, I'm very fortunate that I have these ideas and other people seem to like them. You know, I'm not a magician. I'm not inventing things. I'm just doing what I feel, you know, and I'm being, conv- you know, I've got conviction in them. Yeah, I know these work and I know that they work for most people. Exactly. I was going to say, if, if there's a living, breathing uh, person of all six areas, then uh, you're certainly it, Bob. So No, there we go. far from <laughs> it. <laughs> no, certainly, certainly. So um, do you know what? We've rushed past the hour mark, and I try to keep it under an hour as best I can, but actually we've had an absolutely amazing conversation. It's been brilliant, Bob. So I really, really appreciate it, and thank you for sharing uh, your six areas as well and I know you've alluded to the fact that you're hot, hidden away in the forest of Dean you're not so hidden now that I've told everyone where you are but uh, <laughs> um, are you happy to sort of share with the listeners sort of where to find you and if they are interested in certainly some transformational uh, training where to find you Bob as well yeah I can supply that to you offers but um, my company that I operate under is called Seafield Global mm-hmm. C-F-I-L is that the minus sign? Then global.com. Or they could find me through you, Peter. I appreciate it, Bob. Absolutely. And, and Bob and I have, um, you know, we, we've collaborated on, on, on stuff and um, continue to, to, to pass business to each other as well where, where we can. So um, highly, highly recommend, Bob. I've been, I've been, you know, I've had my outlook transformed by, uh, by several sessions that, that Bob put on that we've spoken to throughout the podcast. So uh, thank you very much for that, Bob. And thank you for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. So I really, really no, appreciate thanks, it. Peter. Thank you. Thank you. I really hope you loved today's episode. And if you did, please make sure you subscribe and listen out for future episodes too. Please do share it across your social media channels. We hope to reach more and help more people. If you want to find out more about me, my name's Pete Rushmer. You'll find me across any social media channel and my business, Flagship Partners. And we're your partners in success across your business. Thank you. See you again soon.